We're going to talk about subordination today. Subordination. Webster's Dictionary defines subordination as the act of serving in a lower rank or position. Uh, It's not always popular. It's certainly not always fun, uh, but it is definitely needful. Uh, And I want to illustrate it with a story. Um, It was New Year's Eve 1990. I was dispatched to a traffic accident. I was a a paramedic firefighter for for several years before entering into the ministry. And I I was working out here, and I was uh, dispatched to a traffic accident. It was on the 215 freeway uh, southbound, just north of Scott Road. And at the time, uh, I'm dating myself here, but there was nothing out there. It was just fields on either side of the freeway. There's been a lot more development now. But at the time, it was just lots of vegetation, and a car had gone off the side of the road. And... um, I say it was New Year's Eve, it was actually, you know, 3 a.m., so it's New Year's Day at this point, but a guy had been out, had a little too much party, he either fell asleep or in his intoxicated state went off the road, and either way, he found himself in a ditch in the culvert there, Uh, and um, it was hard for us to find him. When we were first dispatched, we couldn't find anything. We thought it was a a false alarm, and ultimately we did find the car buried down there in this culvert, and uh, he trapped. We had to to work on extricating him and in assessing his condition. What we determined was uh, that uh, he had very likely had spinal cord injuries, uh, and uh, and was was very injured, very and he was you know we extrication situation and so uh, we we called for an airship because we we re- we reasoned you know this is going to take a while to get him out he's very unstable and so we called for a helicopter uh, and I, I and as I'm tending to this guy I'm there I'm got the responsibility of uh, being the 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 incident commander here on the scene the 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 I'm the senior paramedic and so on so I call for. Uh, one of the engine crews that came out to, to support us, I said, listen, I need you guys, I called for an airship and I need you guys to set up a landing zone on the, on the freeway. So these guys, they closed down the freeway and they set up what they thought was a perfect landing zone for the, for the, the helicopter and they used road flares to, to set this up. And I, d- I didn't have a lot of time to explain. As you might imagine, it's a stressful situation, lots to be done in a short amount of time. And by the time I realized that they had set up a landing zone with these road flares, I'm now hearing the helicopter approaching. And, and so I don't have time to tell all of them, but I grab their engineer and I pull him over and I said, dude, do you understand what's going to happen when that helicopter sets down with his rotor wash, with your road flares and all of this vegetation and this car sitting here in the middle of this vegetation with gas now all over the place? This would be a horrible situation. You need to put those road flares out and you need to set up a different landing zone. And so I said, get your vehicles, put them you know, a couple hundred feet apart, point the headlights into the area where you want the helicopter to land and give them the, those instructions. So I, I had the time to tell him this, but I don't have time to get all of his crew together and tell him, hey, this is what needs to happen. All his crew hears is that I'm not happy with the LZ, the landing zone, and that they need to put the flares out. They're mad at me because they don't understand all this. They haven't put all this stuff together. I didn't really have time to talk to them. But nevertheless, and they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're mad, but they did it. Why did they do it? Well, because they were subordinate to my authority on the situation. Now, and it wasn't that I was better or that they were inferior. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, this is the situation and we all have a job to do. 
And while these guys are subordinate to me and they have to do what I tell them to do, I myself have to be subordinate to the doctor who I'm, I'm communicating with over the radio in terms of my treatment of this, of this critically ill patient, you know, what we're going to do to care for him. I can't just do that on my own. I have to take my orders from somebody who outranks me. So I am in a position of subordination to the doctor, these men in a position of subordinating to me as the, the medical incident commander. And here in our text, I use this as, a, as, a, as an illustration here because in our text, Paul is addressing the delicate subject of subordination in Christian community. And as we're going to see, subordination is required of everybody in the kingdom of God. All of us have to, you know, it's the Andre Crouch song, you got to serve someone, you know, and all of us have to be subordinate. It begins with Jesus subordinating himself to God the Father. It extends to the man who is called to subordinate himself uh, to Christ. And then on to the woman who is called to subordinate to the man. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Uh, and then ultimately to the whole church where we are called to subordinate, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, getting into it, uh, I want to draw your attention back to chapter 10. You guys will recall the last couple of weeks we've been here in chapter 10. And, and the message beginning in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is to flee from idolatry. Paul makes the case that just like the Israelites, we can have a form of religion, but in actuality, we can be guilty of worshiping idols. And, you know, idol worship is, is when we take a good thing and we elevate it to a God thing. And Paul makes it clear that you can't have both. He says in verse 21, uh, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Uh, it's the same thing Jesus talked about in, in Matthew 6, 24, when he said, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So rather than sacrificing to demons, Paul urged the Corinthians to honor God by sacrificing themselves for the sake of others, just as Christ did for us. Uh, and, um, and, and drawing on the picture of communion uh, in verse 24, Paul says something that's hugely foundational for uh, our understanding of chapter 11. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, Paul says this. He says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And building on that, Paul transitions to chapter 11 with this conclusion of chapter 10. He says, uh, verse 31, uh, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And, and, and this is important. This is the context that we have to have in mind when we come to chapter 11. See, here's the big idea of chapter 11. You got to get this. The big idea is that subordination is needful for the profit of others. For you and me to get and to understand the roles that God has called us to and to be those people who will subordinate to God in obediently just carrying out the roles that he's assigned to us, this is critically important 
if God's going to be able to use us to minister to people and to profit other people. Paul says, look, I'm not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may uh, be, be saved. And just as that patient's life on that New Year's Eve depended on mutual subordination of everybody on that, on that call subordinating to the authority that was over them, uh, in the same way, so too, toward that end, for that purpose, Paul says, now beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And we could spend all morning just on that verse. I mean, just take a walk with that. I mean, can, you, can you imagine... Can you, and I just ask you this question, just to kind of percolate in your head, in your heart, in your mind, hey, can you say to people, you know what, imitate me the way that I imitate Christ? Can you say that today? That's a difficult thing to say. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, you need to imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now he's going to define what that is. Verse two, he says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know, now Paul's going to, to articulate some, some points here. What I need you to, to understand here is that this partly is cultural. So I'm going to read through the next several verses here, uh, and, and, and it's going to be like, what? You know, because it's very, it's cultural. It doesn't really translate. But there's some deeper principles that we're going to draw out from this. So I just ask you to bear with me. And I'm just going to go through it. I'll, I'll, I'll explain a few things, and then we'll kind of dig into it. All right. So he says, I want you to know, verse three, <clears throat> that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Super controversial verse. Super, super controversial verse. But, but Paul's saying, listen, you need to know this. And he's talking about roles, and he's talking about the, the assigned responsibility that each one of us get, has been given, and our responsibility to subordinate to what the Lord would say. I want you to know the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covers, covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with, with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is uh, one and the same as if her head were shaved. It was a disgrace for a woman to have her head shaved. Paul here talking about the roles of men and women, and he's saying for a woman to assume a role that is, that is not her role, it's a disgrace to her. Just as for a man to abdicate his role, to not fulfill his role, it's a disgrace for him. The idea being, hey, you know, if the guy's wearing, wearing a head covering, this is something that, that a woman is supposed to do. And so if a man's wearing a head covering, you know, basically there's, there's not a lot of distinction between him and a woman, and that's a disgrace. We'll get, we'll get into that uh, more. Just hold that thought. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. Uh, again, having your head shorn was a disgrace. He says, but if it is shameful... 
for a woman to be shorn or shaved, which it was in this culture, let her be covered. And that's his point. She needs to have her head covered. Verse seven, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. You're like, well, that's kind of prideful. That's kind of arrogant. No, it's biblical. Genesis 127 says that man was created in the image of God. That's what Paul's talking about. He goes on, he says, but woman is the glory of man. Again, that's kind of arrogant. No, it's biblical. Genesis 2.23 says that the woman was created for the man, created from his rib, created as a companion and a complement to him. And so again, this is biblical. The woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from the man. Of course, he's speaking here again, Genesis 2.23. He's talking about um, the, the woman being created from uh, Adam's rib uh, originally. Um, verse 9, he says, Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Again, biblical Genesis 2.18. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And I'll just flat out tell you, nobody knows what that means. No, I mean, nobody knows, people think they know what this means. There's a lot of controversy over what it means. I'll tell you what I think it means. Um, and, I, and I'll just freely tell you that there's a lot of differing opinions on this. I think that it's kind of the attitude of Jude 6, where in, you read that about how the angels left their proper abode. They rebelled against God. Uh, they, they, they abused the authority that they had. They stepped outside of that authority. And God says through his divine word in Jude 6 that, you know, there's a place reserved in judgment for them because they did that. And I think that's the idea here, that, that he says a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In other words, hey, there's, there's an example of what happens to you when you step outside of your authority, not a good idea. That's what I, I think this means. Uh, verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Okay, here's, here's the idea. Just in case you get all chauvinistic on where we've been so far, you know, the, the woman is the glory of man, etc. You know, Paul just throws in here, look, um, keep in mind that, you know, you're both in this together. It's not that woman is made inferior to the man. It's just, it's like your left hand and your right hand. They're, they just serve different purposes. I mean, they're, they're, they complement one another, and that's, that's his idea here. Uh, he says, um, uh, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Verse 12, for as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. Yes, woman was created by Adam's rib, but ever, ever after, man comes from woman, woman give, through childbirth. But all things are from God. Verse 13, judge among yourselves... Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Again, Paul's just talking about roles here. Uh, verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? So, you know, if your hair is going past your, your collar here today, you're dishonoring God. Is that what that means? No, that's not what that means. The, the, the idea here is that uh, if you can't men be distinguished from a woman. In other words, it goes to a deeper issue. There needs to be on the part of men 
the idea that you're going to be a man, that you're going to act as a man, that you're not going to act like a girl, okay? You're going to put your big boy pants on, and you're going to be the spiritual leader that God's called you to be. That's the whole idea here. So when he says, you know, uh, does not nature itself teach that if man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, the idea is being confused with a woman. Uh, you know, I mean, just use a practical example, and this is what Paul's saying. You know, if you, t- if you have a, a, a little boy and you call him a little girl because, you know, there's maybe he's got long hair and you say, oh, look at that little girl. Well, how's that boy going to feel? He's going to be angry about it. He's going to say, no, I'm a man. That's going to be his response. Don't you call. I, I, I had somebody call me on the phone one time. I don't have the deepest voice. And I'm talking to this telemarketer and they called me ma'am on the phone. <laughs> I can't believe I just admitted that. And they called me and my voice got two octaves lower at that point because I'm like, no, I'm not a ma'am. Thank you. I'm a man. Thank you very much. So this is, this is the whole point. Verse 15, he says, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. Verse 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, again, lots of custom there, lots of sort of, you know, what the heck has that got to do with me here in 2011? What's, what's the connection? Here's the connection. This is what Paul's saying. And hear the heart of the Apostle Paul. What he's saying is, look, people are going to hell. People are dying. They're going to hell without Christ. They're in a ditch on the side of the road, spiritually speaking. And I'm going to do everything in my power to save them with the gospel. I'm going to do everything I can to reach them. And he's speaking to the church here in Corinth. And what he's saying is, look, if that's going to happen, church, then I need you guys to imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, I need you guys to operate in a subordinate way. And the role that you have been destined, designed by God to play, I need you operating in your roles. I don't need you abusing your role. I don't need you abusing or neglecting the calling that God has on your life. I need you to to be able to, to recognize, you know what, spiritually speaking, God's called me to set up this landing zone and I need to be subordinate to those that God has placed in authority over me. I can't get all prideful. I can't get all boastful. I can't say, look, I set the the flares out and that's the way it's going to be. Deal with it. I can't have this kind of an attitude. Again, it's a metaphor, spiritually speaking, and this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, just as Jesus embraced his subordinate role to the Father, I need you to embrace the subordinate roles that God has put you in. And I ask you the question today, who has God called you to subordinate yourself to? Who has God placed in authority in your life that maybe you resent? You got your landing zone set up just the way you like it and somebody has the audacity to tell you that you gotta change it and you're like, well, who are they? And God might say to you this morning, they're the person that I've placed in authority over your life. Now, what are you gonna do about it? This is where Paul's coming from here. This is what he's saying. Now, Paul starts with this issue of subordination, again, culturally and, and specifically here to these Corinthians, because the church of Corinth was jacked up. It was messed up. What happened was they, they, their culture had largely been given over to paganism and massive sexual perversion. 
And so what was happening in Corinth was that they had just a, 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 different attitudes about sex and gender that were, that were twisted and messed up, just like today, very much like, like today. And so all the things that we argue about today were the things that they argued about then, homosexuality and gender roles and the rights of, and roles of women and what women could and couldn't do in the church and what you know, they should have responsibility to do and so on. They argued about all of that stuff. And so there was just massive division between husbands and wives and this division spilled over into the church and they were, you know, just divided and confused about a gender and roles and all of these things. And so Paul says, listen, for starters, your problem is that you're taking your cues from culture and you're not taking your cues from scripture. And that's a problem. And so what he says is, look, you've got women leading and you've got men being passive. And I'm telling you that this is a recipe for disaster. This is where Paul's coming from. See, because, you know, and I just tell you this, just putting it, taking it out of the Corinthian culture and putting it in our culture. In America, only 28% of men attend church. Did you know that? And that's actually a couple years old, that statistic. It may be even worse than that now. But, but uh, in America, only 28% of men attend church. Women are twice as likely to attend church more than a man. And most churches in America, are run by women. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, God designed the church to be run by men. And it's not that, you know, your pastor is, is you know, chauvinistic. It's that this is the way the Bible reads, that God called men to lead, to be leaders. Now, I'm blessed to tell you that this morning, I mean, I'm, I've got this percolate in my head. We're meeting here. We're praying. We're getting together. I scanned the room. We got over 30 people praying. There's two women and all the rest are men. I'm like, yes, we've got the men doing what men ought to do. And I'm thanking Jesus for that. But here's what you got to understand. Historically speaking, when women lead the church, the church declines and it fades away. This is what happened. This is exactly what happened in, in Europe. And, and this is what it was happening in Corinth. The women were, were um, calling the shots, uh, and, uh, and the, sh- the church was not operating in a healthy way. And so what Paul does is he says, look, I don't care about culture. I don't care about, you know, the whole women's lib thing and all the stuff that's going on, and this is what was going on in Corinth. He goes, I don't care about any of that. What I want to do is I want to take you guys back biblically to what God's design is, and, and, and you, can, you can have whatever attitude you want to have, but if I can take you back to the beginning, how God designed things and show you how this, how this thing is supposed to work, then you'll get the understanding of, okay, this is how he designed it. This is the way that, that, that God intends it. And so the first thing he does is he takes them back to creation, back to God's original design, and he points out the subordination structure according to God's design. This is verse three. He says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every, man, head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. This is the order. Now, here's where Paul is going with this. The Trinity is our model for relationship. I'm going to put Genesis 1, 26 and 27 up on the screen for you and speak to that for a minute. Here's what God says, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. 
says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Do you see the plurality there? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he continues, he says, let them have dominion over the fish, over the sea, or the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, what we see here is that God is a triune God, that plurality. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God is a triune God. This is speaking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God distinctly existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Additionally, what we see is that we are made in the image and likeness of God and that he made us male and female. Uh, and, you know, you, you can go on and, and, and look in Genesis 2, 18 through 24, where it expands on this. And we see there that like God, the husband and the wife are also one. See, God exists as, as a plurality. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, one God distinctly in, in different persons. And God has created the marriage the same way. The husband and the wife, one flesh but distinct persons, the husband and the wife. Now, in both relationships, although we're one together, there remains a distinct role that requires subordination. That's the key word today and what we're going to continue to drive. It requires subordination in some capacity. See, in the Godhead, the Son subordinates to the Father. Jesus said this in, in John's gospel, John 14, 28. He said, you have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the father for my father is greater than I. Again, Jesus said in John five nineteen. then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, <clears throat> but what he sees the father do, For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. And so Jesus subordinating to the father. Likewise, and here's where it gets contentious, is that the woman in the husband-wife relationship is to subordinate to the man, and the man is to subordinate to Christ. Now, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, just to the right there. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to verse 22. Brandy, hand me a tissue there, would you? Sorry, guys, I'm fighting a cold here, and I'll take two of those. Thank you. You guys will thank me later. All right. Okay. So Ephesians 5, verse 22 says this. Wives, submit to your own... Don't you hate that word? <laughs> By the way, the, the, the word submit there, it's the, it's the Greek word hupotasso. It means to arrange in a rank and file. Sound familiar? Uh, same exact meaning as this, that word subordinate that we talk about. I, I, I think I've told you guys a story. I was doing a, a, a wedding 
for, for this couple that I'd taken through counseling, lovely couple, uh, and it came time to, uh, to do the ceremony, and uh, the mom pulled me aside, uh, uh, just aghast that I was going to have her say that she was going to submit to her husband, and she demanded that I take it out of, of the vows uh, of the wedding ceremony. And, um, you know, yeah, it can, it can get, weddings and funerals can get real fun. And uh, you get interesting family dynamics at both. And I, and I just, I looked at her and, and the, you know, I, I said, I, I, I refuse. If I'm going to do this wedding ceremony, I'm not taking that out because God put it in there. This isn't, you know, I'm not on some power trip. You know, the husband didn't pay me money on the side <laughs> to tell his wife that she was going to submit to him. Well, that'd be nice. But that, that <laughs> God put it in his word. This is, this is just the way it is. So, so this is what God says. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, why does that cause the hair on the back of, of many women's neck to go up? Well, number well, we're going to get into the spiritual reason why, but, but it's also just because men have abused their authority over the years. Uh, and, uh, and nevertheless, here it is. It's this, God has designed it this way. And verse 23 says, why? It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, God says this. This isn't man saying this. This is God's design. He's made man to be the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the body. Verse 20, 24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands in a couple of things. Isn't that what it says? No, in everything, right? Everything. Uh, Again, not popular, but this is God's design. Now, this is the way it's supposed to work, right? Um, Here's the problem. It doesn't always work this way. Why doesn't it always work this way? Because we're sinners, man. That's why. You, you read through, you know, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They were both naked. The man and his wife, you had me at naked. Cool. And they were not ashamed. Wow, this is awesome. One flesh. Everything's great. Right? And it's supposed to be this, 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 she's created to be the helpmeet, man. She's there to come alongside and to help the husband, to be his, and women hate it when I say that, to be his cheerleader, you know, go, go, you can do it, go. This is the way God's designed it, right? And it's supposed to be this way. And the husband there in that saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Just like Jesus laid his life down for me. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to love you. And as you read through Ephesians five, this is, you know, we get into verse 25, says, husbands, love your wives. When I first went through this, I'm like, wow, I got the better end of the deal. She's got to submit to me. All I got to do is love her. And then you get down reading, defining what that love is. Oh, you gave your life. Oh, I got to give my life. Husband's supposed to love his wife like Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? Well, the church nailed him to a cross and spit in his face and said, die already. And he said, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He died. He gave his life for the church. He loves the church. Oh, that's how I'm supposed to love my wife. Really? I'm supposed to lay my life down for her even when she doesn't deserve it, when she's being mean to me? When you, yeah, this is what you're supposed Wow. Maybe she didn't get the better end of the bargain. I don't know, you know, but, but see, that's the way it's supposed to work, that I give my life, I lay down my life, I pour my life into my wife. She there, 
you know, submits to my authority and comes alongside, and together we honor God. But as you read in, through Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 3, and then what happens is sin enters the picture. And Satan comes and he leads Eve astray, and the big question mark is, where was Adam? Because Satan got to her, led her astray. Just a you know, little point of application there, guys. If, if your wife is, is, you know, out there and being neglected, man, that's on you, dude. You know, you've got this responsibility to make sure that she's not being, you know, marginalized by Satan and him working her over. Man, where was, where was Adam? Well, I don't know, but Satan worked Eve over. He deceived her, and then she came, and Adam then fell. And what happens is, now we start to read. We get into, and I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but you get into Genesis uh, chapter 3, 16, 17, 18, 19, and what you start to read is the consequences that happened because of the fall of man, the consequences of our sin. And for the women, yes, I'm going to greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Bummer. That's a result. That's a consequence of the sin. But what else happens there is that basically what it says is that, hey, your desire is going to be for your husband. Sounds like a good thing. It's not. The desire is for his position. And so what happens is, see, women have this great need to be loved and to be taken care of, to have, you know, let me use the metaphor, the knight in shining armor that's going to come and lay his life down for her. And, and women, you know, you know, you wake up and you've got this, this longing in your heart that says, I need to be loved by someone and loved by somebody who's going to lay down their life for me and take care of me and watch out for me and protect me. And this is, this is your great need inside. But because of your sin nature, what competes with that is, yes, you want this guy to come and to take care of you and protect you and everything, but then you want to control him. You want to govern over him. And this is why women are an enigma wrapped in a riddle and why you can't figure them out. Because all at once, guys, they want you to be their hero and to take care of them, but then they want to tell you how to do it. (laughs) And it drives them crazy just as much as it drives you crazy. Seriously. But this is the consequence of sin. Now, for men... Here's the problem with us. With us, we're called to be the leaders. We're called to be the head of the wife. That's God's design. But because of our sin nature, the Bible says that, well, you got to work the ground, man. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. And, And it's by the sweat of your brow, the Bible says, that you are going to have to labor and to strive. And so what happens is, man, ain't nothing coming easy. That's what happens. And so you get home and you have the responsibility to lead your wife and you're, you know what? I'm tired, man. I've been fighting dragons all day long, man. I'm just tired. And so you get home and your wife says, hey, I'm going to tell you what to do. And for you, you think one less thing. Cool. I'll just let her lead because then I can, you know, I can just sit here and watch what I want to watch. So whatever, whatever floats your boat, honey. You know, go for it. And that's the problem that we get into. We get into this dynamic where the roles get jacked up, and this is exactly what Paul is talking about. When he starts going through this whole craziness about head coverings, his whole get is, look, 
Dude, you need to quit acting like a girl and be a leader. Put your big boy pants on and lead your wife for crying out loud. And, and quit abdicating your role to her and letting her lead when that's not the way God has designed things to be. And, and, and he would say to the woman, listen, you need to submit to the authority that I've placed over you. Man, I know submission is hard. And can I just tell you, ladies, this? Submission, because you like the idea of submission until you disagree. And guess what? That's when the submission is defined. Because if you, if you agree, you're not submitting. You're just doing what you want to agree with, what you want to do. That's not submission. Submission is when you say, whoa, wait a minute, I disagree. Oh, are you going to submit? what you want to do, what you think is right to this other person who has the authority. Well, they're wrong. Maybe they are. What are you gonna do? Because ultimately God's called you to submit. Now there's some parameters on that and we haven't got time to be exhaustive about it. But you know, if your husband says, hey, you know, we gotta balance the checkbook, Put you, go get your ski mask, we're gonna rob a bank. You don't have to submit to that. I mean, it's not biblical, I mean, obviously, Right? But by and large, you know, you, I mean, and you're not a potted plant in the relationship, ladies. You know, you're not there for decoration. You, you have a role to play in it. My wife, she speaks wisdom into my life all the time. And, and she's usually right. I've learned over the years to really take a walk with the, with the things. She says some hard things I don't want to hear. And, um, and yet, you know, sometimes it's as though Jesus is sitting in the room just, you know, speaking right through her to me. And so there are those times when, you know, my wife will speak. She'll, she'll give me her opinion. At the end of the day, it's my decision to make, but I've learned being a wise man to really take a walk with the things that she'll say before I'll make the decision. And so there's a balance there. And there's, you know, there's, there's wisdom that's indicated there. But the whole idea here is, man, we have to be discerning. We, we have to be discerning, and we have to function within our roles. Um, I think I've got time. Turn over to Titus chapter 2. It's just to the right. Um, it's actually, I think it's about seven verses over to the right. But just, just go there to Titus. right after 1st and 2nd Timothy there, and we're going to be in chapter 2. Just real quickly, I just want to go through these first eight verses with you. He says this, he says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. These are instructions to how to lead a congregation. You need to speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. Notice what he says, that the older men be sober, now, you know, this isn't just talking about, you know, don't drink, don't get drunk. It's, a, it's about being clear-headed. It's about, listen, you, it starts off, first thing, men, get your head in the game. Be clear. You gotta, you gotta, you, you can't, you can't be tuned out with, with your head in, in the game on television. You gotta have your head in the game that's going on right here, right now. And so he says, hey, listen, the older men be sober, be, be reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Uh, there, there's, there's this instruction there how the men are supposed to, to, to function. Verse 3, he says, the older woman likewise, that they be reverent uh, in behavior, 
not slanderers, in other words, not divisive, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, uh, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. You say, why do you have to tell a woman to love her husband and her children? That's something that comes naturally. And it's interesting, the word that he uses there, uh, it's the Greek word uh, philandros. It has to do with friendship kind of love. In other words, what what is being said here is that you have to, older women have to teach younger women, listen, this is how you become your husband's friend. This is how you become your children's friend. And and that's instruction that's needful. And, and it has to happen. And so he says, this is, this is what you need. He says, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity uh, and reverence incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say to you. Here's the idea. That there's roles that God has designed for for men. There's roles that God has designed for women. And we can't look to culture to define what those roles are or what they should look like. The Bible defines what these roles are and what it should look like. And, 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 and man, I could say a lot about this, but, and there's a lot of different angles of attack I could take on this. Here's, here's what I would just, I, I just feel impressed to, to leave with you, and that is there's very clear instructions here about how the older men are to instruct the younger men and the older women are to instruct the younger women. And I would just say that, that in terms of operating in roles here in the body of Christ, if we're going to be what God has intended us to be as a church, then it can't just be me on the platform instructing you in this is what God's word says and here's how you got to apply it and here's what you got to do. No, the body of Christ has to be iron sharpening iron, one man sharpening another. It has to be all of us spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. And there's a role that every one of you can play here. In fact, I, I just feel impressed of the Spirit to say, I mean, there, there, there's, and it, this is just from the Holy Spirit. There, there's, there's someone here right now, and, and you are older, and you feel like you have nothing to contribute. And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it was that you saw the video, and you're convicted, and you're thinking, I, I can't do that. No, but you can do this. You can, you can make yourself available to disciple a person within the church and say, listen, I'm older, I've lived a few more years than you have, and I can tell you how this Christianity thing works out. And I can tell you how to do it. And that's just a word of, of the Lord to you. And, and I would say that this is important, it's needful, and this is Paul's whole point here. And, and as we go back, and just go back now to, to 1 Corinthians 11, believe it or not, I'm, I'm gonna tackle this entire chapter here. But as we go back here, this is the idea. The whole get is, look, you have gifts that God has given to you and you've got a role that God has given you to play and you need to be faithful to operate within that role. The woman's role is to respect her husband, to submit to him, and to operate under a covering. The man's role is to lead, to be a man, to be a good husband, to be a good father. To, to, to live your life in order, to have control of your life, to have your house in order, 
to have a good reputation, to be a respectable person. So what he's saying here is if we're going to have male and female leaders in the church, that's fine, but the women must embrace their role as women and respect authority, and the men must embrace their role as men and exercise authority, take responsibility for the well-being of your wife and of your children. That's the whole idea here. Now, verse 17, Paul continues. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Why not? Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And what he's going to say is, look, not only individually are you jacking up your roles, but you're also getting them all jacked up corporately. You're, you're not being faithful to the role that God has called you to. Verse 18, he says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. The big idea here is that, look, your behavior is standing out. It's going to stand out. And so I'm not surprised that that there's factions among you because your behavior is manifestly clear. Verse 20 says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He said, what? Exclamation point. I love that. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And here's the thing. Paul is saying, look, your life is out of order personally because you're not operating in the roles that you're supposed to be operating in. And what he's going on to say here is that your church is out of order for the same reason. And see, here's what's happening in Corinth. They were taking the Lord's table, and we're getting ready to partake of, of the Lord's table here in just a minute. And they were taking the commandment, the ordinance that God had given. Jesus Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. And what is this? The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. The, the, the juice, the cup, represents his blood that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. This is the most others-centered act in all of human history. That Jesus Christ would come and give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, nailing him to the cross and spitting in his face and saying, die already... He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he laid his life down for us. And what the Corinthians were doing, they were getting together. They're having communion. Now for us, we symbolically, we've got a cracker and juice. For them, they would have a meal together. They would break bread together. And they would do this from house to house, the the Bible tells us in the book of Acts. And so here in Corinth, they would get together. And what they were doing was they were saying, Hey, Charlie's going to be late. He, he, he's got, he got to work overtime today. Charlie's out of luck, man. You snooze, you lose. You ain't getting nothing, Charlie. And, and so, you know, give me Charlie's portion. And they were, so they were eating. They weren't waiting for everybody. They were just being completely self-centered, self-absorbed. It's all about me. They're getting drunk. How jacked up is your church that so you're getting drunk at communion? And this is what they're doing. Paul's like, you're not partaking of the Lord's Supper. Really? Seriously? You're going to call that worship? What you're doing? You're going to call that worship. 
He's like, all you're doing is you're taking. You're coming into church and you're saying, you know what, it's all about me. And, and, and you, there's no attitude here about the role that God's called you to play and how you, how you are to be with one another. He continues, he says, where am I at here? All right. He says, I praise you not. For I received from the Lord, verse 23, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Paul says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, if you're coming and you're saying, hey, cool, food. Hey, wine, let's get drunk. He's like, you you missed the whole point. Because if you're really having communion, what you would realize is, well, this is all about my sin and and the Savior paying the penalty for my sin. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, that my sinful life would necessitate something like this. And he says, if if that's not going to be your attitude when you come to to, to communion table, dude, you're guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. There's no repentance. There's, 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 there's no transformation. He says, verse 28, but let a man examine himself. And that's what these elements should cause us to do. Just to examine ourselves. Well, if this is what my sin looks like, death of, of, of God in the flesh for my behalf, Man, repentance is in order. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Lord, thank you for what you've done for me is the idea. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Here's the idea that if we partake of communion and keep a short account with God and recognize my sin necessitates this, what it creates in us is a people who live obedient and repentant lives. And there's consequences to your sin. There are. There just are. If you're going to be somebody who decides that you're going you're to abuse alcohol... Well, I guarantee you, your life is going to be shortened. You may have cirrhosis of the liver. You may wrap your car around a pole. These are just consequences that go with your sinful lifestyle. This is the idea here. He says, you know, there's many who are weak, many who are sick amongst you, many sleep, in other words, die prematurely, because you won't keep a short account, because you won't recognize, well, these, this, is the, this is the penalty, the price for my sin. Repentance is in order. That's the idea here. He says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. It's a good thing to keep a short account with God. It's a good thing to have God convict you of your sin as you come to the communion table. Thank you, God, that you do that. 
because you're saving me from being condemned with the world. Verse 33, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Give to me your attention as we close. The idea here, the big idea of chapter 11, is that people are going to hell. And God has called us as a Christian body to be different. To surrender to the Lordship of Christ and to embrace the fact that he who has been given much, well, that much is required. And so there is a role that God has created you to fulfill. And you can either become completely self-absorbed, completely self-consumed, and you can then say, it's all about me. And like the Corinthians, you can turn something, even the communion table, into this most other-centered act in all of human history. You can turn it to the most self-centered thing in all of human history. Or you can say, you know what? For me, I need to recognize I've been bought at a price. I need to glorify God with my body. It's his. I hadn't intended to, to make this the closing illustration, but, but it, you know, it just sort of fits together. You know, we, it's, it's sort of a coincidence we would show that video in the beginning, just that you would see what goes into us meeting together as the body. And, and I want to say this as lovingly as I can because I don't want to come across, you know, as though I'm condemning. But there are some of you here that are content to let others set up and to let others labor and to let others even put out these communion elements and everything that would go into us ministering one to another. Some of you are content just to, to take, to take, to take. And, and I would just tactfully and very carefully ask you, um, what differentiates you from maybe those that would, those Corinthians that would come to the Lord's Supper and, and, eat all the food and drink all the wine in, in, in no deference whatsoever to the rest of the body. That's the idea. That as Christians, we all play a role in the body. We don't exist for ourselves. We belong to the Lord and he has a call on each one of us. And so as we partake of the communion table today, and I, and I went a few minutes over and I appreciate your indulgence. I just ask that we could prayerfully consider, Lord, am I being faithful to the role that you've called me? Am, is the way I'm living my life, Lord, is it well-pleasing in your sight? And if it's not, could I just humbly ask you that you give the Lord the freedom to maybe change your direction, maybe change your course?